So let me be blunt about something, and that is that a lot of people, and quite probably a lot of people in this hall, would otherwise be dead right now, or at least a lot less healthy, but for the work that pharmaceutical companies do. If you think of how many times you've taken antibiotics, casually saving yourself from death by infection. If you think about vaccines and the way they have shielded you against deadly and disabling disease, if you think about the fact that HIV infection is no longer a death sentence, there is a lot that we have to be grateful for when it comes to the products that drug companies invent and then sell to us. So why do people hate the drug companies so much? In a word, it's prices. We have to pay for the drugs, and sometimes we have to pay a lot. On the other hand, drug companies need to make a profit because otherwise, perhaps... They just wouldn't bother. But where's the point when the drug makers charge too much? And to what extent are drug prices themselves driving health care costs overall? Well, those questions sound like the makings for a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., We are here at New York University's Skirball Center in partnership with the Adam Smith Society with four superbly qualified debaters who will argue for and against the motion, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. We have two debaters arguing for this motion. Please, let's first welcome Ezekiel Emanuel. And Ezekiel, who will be called Zeke a lot this evening, um, you are chair of Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. You were a White House special advisor on health policy. You helped to shape the Affordable Care Act. You are also an oncologist. When you're treating and making decisions for your patients, how much do the cost of drugs actually come into consideration? Zero. Not at all. Doctors don't know the cost of any drugs, uh, by and large, and so it's not actually a factor that enters their mind when they write a prescription. All right. Interesting answer. And can you tell us, please, who your partner is? Nira Tandon, a longtime friend and co-conspirator on the Affordable Care Act. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... He's only joking, (laughs) just to be clear. (laughs) Please welcome Nira Tandon. Nira, you are the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. You also served as an advisor on health reform in the Obama administration. Also, um, you were a policy director for Hillary Clinton's first presidential campaign, and you're still advising her. A recent political profile said this about you, that you are, quote, Hillary Clinton's anger translator. (laughs) What the heck does that mean? I think that means that I am full of sweetness and light. (laughs) Much of which will be on display tonight, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion. Please welcome Paul Howard. And Paul Howard, you are Director of Health Policy and Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where you are also a member of Project FDA, uh, which aims to reform the FDA. So what's wrong with the FDA in 40 words or less? Well, uh, like all big institutions, it tends to be pretty risk-averse and more worried about bad things happening than making good things happen faster. Okay, interesting answer as well. And who is your partner? Lori Riley. Ladies and gentlemen, Lori Riley. And Lori, you're Executive Vice President for Policy Research and Membership at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, which abbreviates to pharma. Um, representing some of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. Now, um, in the campaign that we've been seeing through 2016, um, prescription drug costs have been something of an issue. And you've said that it's fair to have a conversation about costs. That should be on the table. How would you rate the level of discourse between the candidates on this topic? (laughs) On this topic, I would say that the conversation has been minimal at best, And um, I think it could be improved with a more informed debate. That's what we're going to have tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion. The motion is this. Blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. First speaking for the motion, Neera Tandon, president and CEO of the Center for American Progress and the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Ladies and gentlemen, Neera Tandon. Good evening, everyone. It's a great honor to be here to talk about one of the most important issues I think we face in the healthcare system. And 
I wanted to start off uh, with where I think this debate really should start off, with consumers and people affected by high drug prices. Moms who are, are working hard every day, moms like Lauren Bauman, who has had cancer for 10 years and relies on a daily dose of Gleevec, a cancer drug whose price has more than tripled since 2001. Even with insurance, her copay is as high as $2,200 a month. That has driven her family into bankruptcy and forced her and her nine-year-old daughter to move out of their house. But she says she has no choice because without this pill, she will die. But there are stories like that throughout our country, stories of 70-year-old diabetes patients who rely on insulin and whose price has tripled in a decade. The mom and her son who both need, who have severe allergies and both need an EpiPen and have to split it between the two of them. I have to remind everyone that pharmaceutical costs in the United States are higher than in any developed country. That's because pharmaceutical companies charge us for higher costs. They charge us more than they charge anyone else. Now, their response is usually that we need innovation and that's what's driving costs. The truth is that pharmaceutical companies are spending more on marketing than they are on research. And let me remind everyone, all of us as consumers are paying twice. We pay high drug prices, but we also, as taxpayers, pay for the National Institutes of Health, the research to fund pharmaceutical companies. And that's why I think this has become such a critical issue in this election and at a time when there is so much disagreement on so many issues, we are seeing Republicans and Democrats support strong action to rein in the price of pharmaceuticals. And the reason why is that pharmaceutical companies are able to price, to basically charge a monopoly price and rely on numerous insurance companies who don't have that pricing power to just pay what they can charge. And that is why you're seeing this outrage around the country. You're seeing this outrage because there is only one EpiPen. There is only one drug, and essentially the pharmaceutical company is saying, I'm not going to charge you the value of this drug. I'm going to charge you whatever I can. And in a healthcare system where people need these drugs to live, that's not right. So I'd just like to say, leave with you with the words of one healthcare observer who recently said, Imagine if Jonas Salk had priced the polio vaccine like today's drug companies. We'd still have polio. Thank you, Neera Tandon. And our motion is blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. And here to make his opening statement against the motion, Paul Howard, Director of Health Policy and Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Howard. Thank you, John, and good evening. Um, My role here tonight probably seems like a a steep uphill climb. I think that for most people in the audience, uh, you probably feel the same way about the pharmaceutical industry as you do about a pat-down at the TSA. (laughs) And not all of that skepticism is unwarranted. Some patients, particularly those with serious chronic illnesses, are paying too much out-of-pocket for their medicines, and we need to find a solution for that. So I'm not here to defend the industry or any part of the industry. What I am here to do is to defend the policies that keep Americans healthy and provide hope in the face of a devastating diagnosis. And if we step back and take a look at the big picture, not last year's data, but decades of data and evidence, we'll see that medicines properly used are the things that keep us out of the most expensive parts of the healthcare system. That's hospital beds and nursing homes. It's not the suffering from Alzheimer's or diabetes. It's not the prolonged disability and premature death that's being driven by medicines. That is what they are meant to cure. 
The problem with our debates around drugs is that the prices of drugs are very easy to see. They come with sticker prices. The benefits can be harder to see because they accrue over years and decades. From 1969 to 2013, mortality from cardiovascular disease declined by nearly 70% thanks to medicines that were highly effective for high cholesterol and high blood pressure. For HIV-AIDS, mortality has declined by 85%. And today, some patients can keep their disease in check with a single pill. Remember, none of these developments were inevitable. If we had handled the prescription drug uh, challenge the way many other countries do and the way our opponents tonight suggest, we would see fewer innovations and we'd wait longer for them. Now, apply that analysis to the future and think about what it means. There are new technologies on the way that promise to do even more to lower medical costs and improve health. Gene therapies that can restore sight to blind children. Stem cell therapies that can restore a working pancreas to a diabetic woman who no longer has to rely on insulin. Shouldn't we be doing everything possible to bring those technologies to patients as quickly and safely as possible? It's essential to remember that effective prescription drugs can actually reduce other health care costs. So the Alzheimer's Association projects that if we had a treatment by 2025 that just delayed, not cured, just delayed Alzheimer's by five years, over the next decade, Medicare would save close to $350 billion, and patients would be saved more than $220 billion in out-of-pocket costs. So when we look at the total cost of care, how much is devoted to medicines, how much of the increase is somewhere else, we see a very different picture because sometimes a drug that looks expensive is going to wind up being the cheapest option for treating that condition we have. And those expensive medicines don't stay expensive forever. Patents expire. Prices plummet. Doctors, MRIs, and hospital beds start expensive and they stay expensive. If we're serious about slowing runaway healthcare costs, what we need to do is not focus on the sticker price, price of the drug, but of the total price of delivering better health. So please join me in voting against the motion. Blame Big Farm for runaway healthcare costs. Thank you. Thank you, Paul Howard. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by GSK. For years, we have relied on antibiotics. But what happens if they stop working and a once-treatable infection could be fatal? At GSK, we're one of the few companies continuing to invest in a new generation of antibiotics through our own dedicated team and by working with other scientists. Because antibiotic resistance isn't a problem of the future. It's already here. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third, debating for the motion... Here is Zeke Emanuel. He is an oncologist and chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Ladies and gentlemen, Zeke Emanuel. So let me review a few points with you as to why, in fact, it is drug prices that are driving high health care costs. First, I want to remind you what Nira said about that drug Gleevec, which is a cancer drug to treat chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML. The drug was introduced in 2001, as Nira had said, at about $3,300 per month. It has gone up about 300%. No added research to the drug, no new innovation in the drug. The price just went up because the drug company had a captive audience and there was no cap in the United States. And let me point out, that drug is 71% cheaper in the next most expensive country, Switzerland, where that drug company sits at home. There are multiple drugs out there on the market that are about $150,000 per year, don't cure anyone, ameliorate a disease, but are hugely expensive. For multiple sclerosis, the FDA recently approved Lemtrada, $150,000. It reduces multiple sclerosis flares from two and a half in every two-year period to 1.75 in every two-year period. Does not cure one patient, $150,000 for that drug. There are plenty of drugs in cancer that are similar. No one in this room, well, I'm not sure this is New York, 
Many in this room may be able to afford that, but most Americans, <laughs> where the median income is $56,000 a year, cannot afford those drugs. You know who pays for that extra money? You do, through your higher premiums and your taxes. Drug costs are going up faster than any other segment of the healthcare marketplace. Since 2008, brand name drugs, those drugs that have the big sales name, right, have gone up in price 164%. Regular inflation in American society, 12%. In 2014, drug costs went up 13%. 2015, 8%. Compare that to the rest of the healthcare marketplace. Hospitals went up about 4, 4.5%. Doctor visits went up about 4.8%. Drug, drug costs are going up much faster than the rest of the healthcare marketplace. And drug companies are hugely profitable. The average profit in the drug industry is 15%. But Gilead, which had that new hepatitis drug, profit margin, 55%. Biogen, 33%. Even behemoths like Pfizer are at 15%. And compare that to other industries. Cars, what's the profit margin of car makers? 6%. Big oil, big dangerous oil, 8%. The pharmaceutical industry is the most profitable industry in the United States. They could use with a little less profits and still have plenty of incentive to do all that research. Let's conclude by noting that the United States government gives drug companies a monopoly through patents and FDA marketing exclusivity. And then we don't regulate their prices. We know what happens when you give a patent or marketing exclusivity and a monopoly to a company. It exploits a monopoly by just jacking up the prices. And that's what drug companies have done. So we have to actually control drug prices. Either the drug companies do it, or we do need the government to step in and actually control drug prices. Thank you very much. Thank you, Zeke Emanuel. And the motion again is blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. And here to make her opening statement against the motion, Lori Riley. She's Executive Vice President for Policy Research and Membership at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Ladies and gentlemen, Lori Riley. Thank you. In the 1990s, HIV-AIDS was feared not just because of the human toll it was taking on society. It was also feared because of the strong financial impact it was having on our healthcare system. But in the mid-1990s, combination therapy treatments came to market, and since that time, HIV-AIDS death rates have fallen by 86% in this country. Today, it's chronic disease and treating patients with chronic disease that are responsible for 90% of all healthcare costs. Just one of these, diabetes, is responsible for $245 billion in costs. We have medicines to treat patients with diabetes, but yet only one in three patients today is adequately treated for their diabetes. If we did more to get those patients treated and have them adherent to their medicines, we would save $19 billion in this country. When we talk about healthcare costs, though, and Zeke mentioned it, hepatitis C is one that comes to mind. But what people don't often talk about is that before these new innovative three treatments hit the market, we were spending $30 billion a year in this country to treat patients with hepatitis C, and those costs were projected to climb to $80 billion in 20 years. But again, innovation happened. New medicines hit the market that took a disease that kills five times as many people as HIV-AIDS does in this country and cured it. And something else happened. In under a year, we had two additional hepatitis C medicines that came to market, and the price of those medicines fell by 40 to 60%. From a clinical perspective, we've cured a million patients from hepatitis C in two and a half years. That's more than the previous 20 years combined. While it's clear that the launch of those medicines in 2014 caused prescription drug spending to grow, and we hit a high watermark of 12.5% in 2014. The government actuaries, though, predict over the next decade, spending for medicines will be in line with all other forms of health care spending costs. The system in our country works like this. When a brand-name medicine gets approved, it can expect to get competition from another brand-name medicine in under two years of time. When that competition happens, prices fall. In addition, 
we have generic entry. And when generic entry happens, typically 10 to 12 years after a product hits the market, 80% of costs drop for that product. Market share shifts overnight. Today, 90% of all medicines used in this country are generic. The cost of procedures like an angioplasty has gone up 66%, and there's no signs that it will ever fall. But the price of medicines does fall over time. I'm not going to sit here and argue, though, that solving the healthcare challenges that we face are somebody else's problem. We all share in trying to get to a better system. Paul mentioned the need to reform the FDA. Today, there are 4,000 drugs sitting at the Food and Drug Administration, generic drugs, waiting to get approval. The average time to get a generic drug approved at the FDA today is four years. That's too long. We also need to ensure that the FDA can keep pace with the regulatory science and the new advances we're making so that they can review brand-name drugs quicker and get those to market so that they compete with other brand-name drugs. The need for future innovation is clear. Drug costs, though, are not unsustainable. Disease and the cost associated with disease in this country is what is unsustainable. I urge you to vote against the motion tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie Riley. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now uh, we move on to round two. And in round two, the debaters address one another directly. And they also take questions from me and from you, our live audience here in New York. Our motion is this, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. We have a team arguing for the motion made up of Neera Tandon and Ezekiel Manuel. They have uh, portrayed a pharmaceutical industry that is, they say is a major culprit in driving up the cost of health care overall, a, uh, an industry that just because it can sets exorbitant prices that are out of all proportion to their real value. They say that this overlooks the contribution that taxpayers make to the development of these drugs, that these companies get to operate as temporary monopolies. The team arguing against the motion, Paul Howard and Laura Riley, argue that drug prices cannot be the driving force behind raising, rising health care costs because their percentage of the overall price over time has been relatively steady and is predicted to remain that way. They say that even high-priced drugs deliver value by keeping people out of hospitals and out of nursing homes. Innovation, they say, needs to be rewarded. Investment needs to be paid for, and that's what profits are for. And it found an interesting disparity immediately between the two sides. The side arguing against the motion has claimed that as a percentage of overall health care costs, drug prices account for about 16%, roughly have for a long time, half for decades, are predicted to do so. The team arguing against the motion, to quote them almost verbatim, say drug costs are going up faster than any other sector in the healthcare marketplace. Let me take the argument first to the team arguing for the motion. If your opponents are right, they blow quite a big hole in your argument. Zeke Emanuel. No, I mean, the fact of the matter is that specialty drugs, which are those drugs used for cancer and multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis, drug companies are investigating those. They are, uh, in fact, going up at much higher rates, 20 and 25 percent. And those are the drugs that are increasingly going to the FDA and being approved. And the fact that the actuary has predicted one thing or another it has no bearing on that future because the actuary has been wrong over and over again about his predictions of health care costs. He has to guess what drug companies are going to charge. What we've seen is they'll charge the limit. Okay. And by the way, let's point out, let's, Mylan let's, charged $600, got Zeke, all Zeke, this attention, Zeke, and never rolled back Zeke, their price. Zeke? Zeke? Yes, John? I am the moderator. <laughs> Paul Howard. Uh, look, I mean, the, the, dis- the dissonance here is this. They're pointing to individual drug prices and saying they're going up, 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 up. Funnily so, en- so what's wrong with that argument? Well, funnily enough, it doesn't keep going up, up, up forever because what happens is biosimilars, the generic versions of these expensive injectable drugs, enter the market and compete. Neera Tandon. Uh, we, do, we can all have estimates of the future. The reality is in 2014 alone, all prescription drug prices, not just specialty drugs, but all prescription drug prices increased by 12.2%. It was 8% last year, but that, of course, in both years is the fastest rate of growth for any part of the healthcare system. We can have projections into the future, but this is our lived experience. Exorbitant prices that people in other countries don't pay and still have access to uh, to quality drugs. Okay, let's let your opponent. Laura Riley. 
Thank you. Uh, what Nira quoted was actually not price growth. That was spending growth. And spending growth is the combination of price times volume. So she's right that in 2014, we did see spending growth increase. And a large part of the reason that we had that, again, was new treatments for hepatitis C that are curing a disease that kills five times as many people as HIV AIDS that was going to cost our healthcare system $80 billion over the next 20 years' time. If you look back at the entire last decade in terms of spending growth for prescription medicines, we were less, less in terms of spending growth compared to hospitals, compared to doctors, compared to home health care. If you look going forward over the next decade, we're expected to spend $2.4 trillion more on health care in this country. 85% of that additional $2.4 trillion is attributable to hospitals, doctors, home health, nursing homes, everyone but prescription drugs. We're about 15% of that increase going okay, forward. Let, let's let me Zeke, it, it, it's always everyone else. Let's get clear on two uh, important points. One of the reasons patients are non-compliant with their medications, a very large reason they're non-compliant with their medications, is prices, because prices are very high. Just take the diabetic example that was given before. Insulin in the United States, non-discounted price, $372 for uh, a month of treatment in the United States compared to $46 in France. The second point I want to address is they're saying, look, all we need is competition. But the fact is you get a lot of competition in the drug market, and it doesn't necessarily drive down prices because, as I mentioned before, doctors don't know prices. Here's an article from JAMA just this August. Competition between two or more brand-name manufacturers selling drugs in the same class does not usually result in lower prices. Paul Howard, I mean, the point made earlier in the debate about the high profit margins of some pharmaceutical companies, one going as high as 55%, the argument was made those profit margins are so high that pharmaceutical companies could just make less money and still be okay. What about that? The, the, The hint being they should make less money. Well, well, the, the thing I find kind of amusing of Nira and Zeke's point, especially Nira, is, you know, what's the right profit? I guess you know. I mean, maybe it's the automotive industry, 6%. Well, how, about fast, how about fast food, 2%? What other industry do you want to be more profitable than the one that's attempting to get a cure for HIV? Um, if you want to see someone else, if you want to see investors send their money somewhere else into a less risky industry, maybe software, the next Snapchat, by all means, cut the profits for the pharmaceutical industry. Those investors and those companies can send their money elsewhere. I'm so pleased that you mentioned venture capital. What's actually the the biggest change in the pharmaceutical market is the rise of the Martin Shkreli's of the world. To use the monopoly power of particular drugs to drive the highest prices to extract profits. I do not want to set the profit margin for a company. But when there is a drug that people literally have to choose between bankruptcy and paying, even when they have health insurance, I'm sorry to say, I think 55% might be something you might bat an eye at. I'm not saying I'm going to set that price, but at least you could admit that should trouble you. Lori Riley. Well, it does trouble me because I view that as a failure of the healthcare system, Nira. You know, the purpose of insurance is to spread risk across large populations. With regards to profitability, I want to come back because I think we always cite profitability of the companies that we've all heard of, right? You'll, you'll trounce out Gilead's profitability or Pfizer's profitability. But the reality is 90% of the 1,200 biopharmaceutical companies that exist today make zero profit. Let's uh, go to some audience questions. Um, here comes... Uh the mic on your left-hand side. Hi, my name is Bonnie Wiper. I hear, I read and hear all the time that the pharma's kind of, if we try to regulate drug prices, they threaten to stop innovating. By the same token, you talk about a robust and competitive market among pharma's. Don't you think that the competition, that if the prices were regulated and the farmers followed through with their threat to stop innovating. Don't you think competition would make that a self-defeating strategy? Do, do you think that competition? Oh, it's not, you don't do a leading you? question. <laughs> do you think? Laurie Riley. 
Well, first of all, I would say just because the government isn't in the business of setting prices, although I would say for a lot of our market they do because we pay a very 60% rebate in Medicaid, we pay a 50% coverage discount in Medicare Part D, we pay a 340B discount of half of the hospitals in this country. So there are a number of our prices that are regulated by the government. But I would say just because in the commercial private sector side that the government hasn't stepped in to control the prices, don't confuse that with with there isn't cost containment in our sector. To the contrary, we have essentially three purchasers that are buying our drugs. They have huge leverage. One of them buys on behalf of more people that are the entire country of France. What does that mean? They have a take-it-or-leave-it policy. Just this past week, one of our companies who makes insulin announced that they're cutting 1,000 employees as a result of the fact that the competition in the insulin marketplace is driving further and further and deeper discounts. And it's because of that leverage that they have, it does keep costs in check. Just because it isn't the government deciding how much to pay for something doesn't mean that there aren't other powerful purchasers doing it. Pfizer... If we had a more regulated price, it's not going to suddenly start producing cars and not suddenly going to go into the media business, right? It's in the pharmaceutical business. And if its price margin went from 14% to 10%, it wouldn't get out and dissolve itself. So that's a false argument that innovation would go away. Okay. And I would, could, could I just come back to that because I didn't yes. touch the, the piece yes. on returns? When, a company, when an individual makes an investment in a biopharmaceutical company, they're making that investment knowing that almost 90% of what we put into an FDA lab is going to fail. So they're betting on the chance that maybe that money that they're putting in is going to be one of the successful ones. So as a result, they expect to get a return for that investment. Risk is not tied to any individual drug. It's tied to a portfolio. And we know that that risk isn't high. How do I know the risk isn't high? Because the profit margin is 15%. No, the it profit tells you the risk is what isn't you need that to high. reward someone for taking risk. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Another question. Sir, right down the middle, you're wearing an orange sweater. Thank you. Why basing the whole discussion about profit and not how make the system better to find a way to make it more affordable? When you try to uh, avert the role of pharmaceutical companies by pointing the finger at insurance companies or pointing the front finger at hospitals, I think it is relevant that those systems have much less profitability in them. And that is the reason why we are raising the issue of profitability. If, you, if there was very low profitability, we would all recognize that that would probably be an indication of price. But that variability is why I think there is a lot of anger at high drug prices. Response from well, the other well, side. Well, I mean, we Paul should Harvey. return, of course, to the question of the debate, which is, should we be blaming pharma for runaway drug, runaway health care costs? Out of control right, health care Right, right. <laughs> oh, thank you. Out of control. Out of control running away. So, look, it's 16%. 500,000 people were hired in the health care sector last quarter. It's not the profitability... It's the base spending that you're talking about, and we're spending much more on hospitals and physician services. So even if a lower rate of increase on a bigger base turns out to be more money, that's why it stays level over time. Uh, Zeke, you, you've been really cooperative lately. If, if, <laughs> do, you wanna, do you want to respond to the... Am uh, I st- uh, so, this is so, him well-behaved, uh, uh, just this, for the record. This is, this is as well-behaved as I get. So <laughs> look, I think if we want to talk about solutions, you know, we do agree with... Paul, that you need to streamline the FDA and they do need to get more resources to approve generic drugs and other drugs more rapidly. And we believe that you should tie the pricing of drugs to how much benefit they produce for patients, including whether they forestall a surgical procedure or forestall a hospitalization. Drug companies don't price according to that how much health benefit drugs get. Because if that were true, you would not get $150,000 cancer drugs that don't cure anyone and prolong life two or three months. Lori Riley. Yeah. 
Well, I would challenge the notion that companies aren't willing to, to pay and have, be paid based on value. Just yesterday, there was a major deal announced between Aetna and Merck for their diabetes drug, where those drugs will be tied towards value-based outcomes. Amgen and Pilgrim entered into a contract just a few months ago on their new PCS As a representative K-9s. of Pharma, would you endorse the idea that we should have all drug pricings be value-based pricing? If you agree, we're on the same side, and I'll move I, over there. I, <laughs> Zeke, drugs today, more than any other part of the healthcare system, are in part based on value. We have to do lengthy clinical trials where the safety and efficacy products of our medicines are put to True. test. We then have to go in front of the payers and demonstrate to them the value that our medicines will provide to them. They don't have to cover our medicines if they don't want to. We are moving towards a system of value, and a number of our companies have stepped forward and said we're willing to engage in contracts that are focused on outcomes. Is it easy to do? I'll be honest, it's not. And part of the reason it's not is government regulation. Government regulation is stuck in a fee-for-service world, and we're moving towards a value-based system. So I would hope and ask you if you would agree with us that changing some of the current government regulations about how we communicate about our products, what we can do to support patients and ensure they're adherent, are addressed so that we can move more rapidly to that system. Hi. Uh, I guess my question is about uh, is two parts. It's about how other countries, developed countries, are keeping costs down. So... I would like both to explain how those systems are different, how they're making it work, and then also what are the potential barriers, DC gridlock aside, to implementing those things in the U.S. and you know, um, scalability. Um, and wait, 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 wait. That's a policy issue that I don't think is going directly to our question. Do we blame big pharma for out-of-control health care costs? We're I not talk, get it there. We're not debating solutions. I'm, I'm happy to get it to that, though. You've got to get it there answer. in 25 seconds. Uh, so the reason that – it might be a minute. The reason uh, – No, no, really, you don't have a minute. Do it in half 30 seconds or give up. <laughs> That seemed kind of mean. No, no. I want to keep things, keeping it shaped uh, on topic. So the issue here is, uh, this I think is really relevant to how much pharmaceuticals are driving it in the United States. Because when you look at other countries, they are paying dramatically less, like lower prices. The reason why they are drive having lower prices is because you have someone, not necessarily the government. In many countries, it's a private actor that has market power for many, many consumers, not just insurance companies. It has that market power to negotiate a lower drug price. We are paying higher than any other country because you can say there are three PBMs, there's a Medicare system, there's multiple insurers that are paying. There, it, we have a much more fragmented system, and that is why in the United States, pharmaceutical companies are driving that price up because they never charge this much anywhere else in the world. Okay, nicely done. The U.S. is the, the world's medicine chest. So we produce far more drugs, far more drug research, Silicon Valley, all of that stuff. And once you produce the drug, the company, it's like a, a plane that takes off. There are people who are paying first class and people who are sitting in coach. But everybody gets to the same place. But once the U.S. companies produce those products, they have every financial incentive to sell them, even though they're taking a massive haircut on the price. Now, economists are unanimous that R&D, global R&D, depends on global revenues. So... Those countries are free-riding on our investments in research and development, and there'd be more medicines available to everyone if they were paying U.S. prices. Yes, and perhaps if we, what that means is we are very much subsidizing on both ends. We're paying for high, in high research dollars, and we're paying high consumer dollars, right? So maybe we could have a system where we pay less, Other countries pay more. I'm definitely for that. (laughs) The National Institutes of Health does spend money on research and development, but their entire budget last year was $30 billion. The entire budget for biopharmaceutical research and development was over $75 billion. Not all of the NIH budget goes to research. And in fact, a few years ago, Congress asked NIH to do a study, and it said, Do us a favor. Look at the top 50 drugs that are sold in this country and tell us how many of them had a connection back to NIH funding. They ended up looking at 47 drugs and found that four of them had a connection back to the NIH. 
To say that NIH funding is a substitute for the risk that happens by biopharmaceutical companies to bring a new medicine to market significantly undervalues the role that biopharmaceuticals no, 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 no one is saying it's a substitute. I just want to be clear about that. Zeke, Manuel, no we, is, Zeke, we, have, we have a question, Zeke, from Facebook. Um, someone named Pancho Loera is asking, should we set up the system so that we can import drugs from other countries? Look, if we had fair prices here, we wouldn't be looking to import drugs. The fact that we're looking to import drugs from Canada is just because we want to make an arbitrage on the pricing, not because they make better drugs in Canada that we can't get in the United States. So it's really a pseudo-argument. The importation would only be a way to pressure the drug companies. We have more effective ways, actually, of getting reasonable prices, it seems to me. If we can't get to those agreements because of political gridlock, as noted, then maybe we need importation, which, we, which by the way, the FDA does have that power to do when prices are up or there are shortages. But it's an indirect way. It's, it's a substitute for actually directly addressing the pricing problem. I'm going to move on to the last part of this round, and it's what we are calling the 1530 volley. And in this, each side gets the formal opportunity to put a challenge or a question to the other side, showing why they're right and why their opponents are very wrong. They get 15 seconds to make their point. Their opponents get 30 seconds to respond. And then there's a 15-second rebuttal, and then we'll switch it and do the whole thing to the other side. At the end of each of these time periods, 15 and 30 seconds, I'm going to ring a bell. That means you have to stop talking. So I'm going to start with this team, the team arguing for the most Either of you can go in 15 seconds. What do you have to say right now to the other side? Your 15 seconds starts now. How are we going to actually reduce drug costs uh, given the fact that they are high, they have gone up substantially in the last few years, and we have more specialty drugs coming out this, uh, where the price, prices are 20, 30 percent higher? Look, get the government out of the way. <laughs> there is something called Medicaid best price that limits the ability of insurers and companies to come together and say, hey, pay for performance. We're going to save you money. We're going to improve that patient's health. And that puts the onus on the drug manufacturer to perform and lowers the barriers facing patients. 15 seconds to respond to what you just heard from them. Are you convinced? Look, (laughs) no, I'm not convinced because there's no indication that drug companies are actually lowering the opening price. And they keep, when they have a drug out there, they keep raising the price over and over again. It's not clear at all that they're going to be willing to give in to prices. As a matter of fact, only when they're forced to lower prices. All right, your side now gets to put, what do you want to say to the other side? I would say there seems to be an assumption from the other side that any time spending on medicines goes up, it's automatically a bad thing. But if spending goes up because we're curing disease and we're bringing new breakthrough treatments, that doesn't seem like a bad thing to me, particularly if these medicines can prevent the need to use other more costly health care services. But it seems like from your side, that seems like a bad no, thing. What, what- We're we're, we're agreed that if the drug is curative, if the drug decreases side effects or saves money in the system, that's a good thing. The problem is we have these super high drug prices, $150,000, $300,000 drugs that don't cure anyone, and they're still exorbitantly expensive. And that makes it difficult for people to actually take the drugs and be healthy. Yeah, and I think, and I think, I think we'd all agree, and, and maybe we could all agree as a group. We definitely want more high value in the system. We definitely want drugs that work for, that benefit people. Fifteen seconds to respond. Look, you want the you want the iPhone. You don't want the first cell phone. There's going to be incremental improvements. There are going to be things that are not perfect cures, and you want to pay for them too, right? You want people to have advantages and get better. You're not going to save them. Wait until there's a cure, and until then, we're not going to treat you. Time is up. That concludes this round, and it concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Now we move on to round three. Round three will be brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Here making her closing statement in support of the motion, Neera Tandon, president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. I want to thank the folks who we are arguing vigorously with. I think we come to a place where we all want higher value in the system, but we have essential questions like how do we have a system in which a, a drug, the drug price goes up over time, not goes down? 
We've looked at these very famous cases recently, and I think that tells you that when a drug has existed for a while, it's been on the market, it gets a new company entering in, buying it, and then driving up the price, not driving down the price. And I appreciate that is not that is an exception. That's not the rule. But that exception tells you this market is not working properly. And from a market perspective, we do need to figure out a strategy to ensure that pharmaceutical companies who are responsible for these high prices that we are seeing in drugs have more competition, have more incentive, have more of a structure to not drive the highest price they can get away with. There is almost no issue I agree with Donald Trump on. (laughs) But even he has called for Medicare negotiating drug prices because of the anger and the issue that people are seeing with this. Every other country has that level of negotiation. We are the only country that doesn't. And that is why I hope you will vote for the motion that shows that pharma is responsible for drug prices being so high. Thank you, Neera Tenden. The motion, blame big pharma for out-of-control health care costs. And here making his closing statement against this motion, Paul Howard, Director of Health Policy and Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you for a moment to pretend that you're a billionaire. Uh, Your name is Mark Cuban. You're on Shark Tank. And someone comes to you, and they're pitching a new idea. It's a parking app. It'll cost them $100,000. They'll hire some coders, and they'll be on uh, the iTunes store in a year, maybe two years tops. There's no barrier to entry, and you can get right out there and start earning money. The next person to pitch you is somebody who has a new idea for a drug. And it's going to cost them, uh, let's say, 50 to $100 million just to get through human clinical trials for the FDA. And then there is an 88% chance that in 10 years, it'll be a flop. Which investment are you going to make? That is the challenge that we're facing. Look, the FDA is the biggest barrier here. It's a barrier in generic drugs. It's a barrier to more innovative medicines. We need to find ways to bring more effective medicines to market less expensively so we can have both incremental and breakthrough innovations and more of all of the above and then tie them to the performance in the market. Because our biggest problem, as I spoke at the beginning, is not the drug price It is the illness and the death and the disability that we all grapple with. And so the fact that we have very low Alzheimer's drug spending right now because we have no effective treatments is not a cause for celebration. It should be a cause for alarm. And if we change pricing without changing how we innovate, all we're going to wind up is with fewer drugs. And a drug that you don't have for a serious disease is infinitely expensive because you can't buy it. Thank you, Paul Howard. The motion, again, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Zeke Emanuel, Vice Provost and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Let me remind you and Paul, we're not debating the FDA. We're not debating government regulation. We're not debating whether we want innovation or not. We all want innovation, and we want cures for diseases like Alzheimer's. We're here to debate drug pricing and drugs outrageously high prices. In the last few years, drug prices have gone up two or three times more than every other segment of the healthcare market. And what's driving that are higher prices by, higher profits by the insurance company than any other segment of, of the marketplace and any other segment of healthcare. They make more profits three times as much as the insurance company, sometimes seven times as much as other insurance companies. The other side wants you to say, look, we should change the, co- the deductibles and the copay so that's more affordable for people. Yes, your deductible when you go buy your medicine will be lower, but your premium will go up unless we take control of drug prices. So we have suggested that it is drug prices driving health care costs, and what we need to do is to bring drug prices in line with their health benefit. If they're curative, we don't have a problem paying a real good price for it. But we don't want outrageously high prices for minimal health benefits. We want value-based pricing that ties the health benefit 
to the price. And that's not where the pharmaceutical industry has been going. It's been going using its monopoly power to get as high prices as it can get, and that's why it's driving high health care costs. Vote for the proposition. Thank you, Zeke Emanuel. And that proposition, one more time, blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. And here, making her closing statement against that motion, Lori Riley, Executive Vice President of the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Thank you, and thank you for having me tonight. I want to reiterate, drug spending is not the reason why we're seeing large increases in health care spending. Over the next decade, we're expected to spend an additional $2.4 trillion on health care. That's a lot of money. 15% of that is expected to be as a result of drugs. But in that next decade, it's possible that we're going to see new medicines come to market that for the first time actually treat Alzheimer's disease. We're going to see medicines that add to our war chest of medicines in oncology. The progress that, that we can make over the next decade is significant, and I would argue it's worth that 15 extra percent in health spending costs. Two years ago, I lost my mother to ALS. It's a devastating disease where there is no treatment, there is no cure, and quite honestly, today there is no hope. And for patients, whether they have ALS or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or cancer, I don't know another solution than innovation progressing in the future. We have done that in HIV-AIDS. We've done it in hepatitis C. And we're now at a point, and we're on the cusp of doing it in many other areas. But we have to have the ability to move on. I think 15% of our healthcare dollar devoted to some of the biggest and boldest advancements we see in healthcare is well worth it. We talked today a lot about prescription drug spending growth. We didn't talk at all about the 85% of health spending growth in every other area of our healthcare sector. We didn't question why the cost of a procedure goes up year after year after year. I'm not afraid to talk about drug costs, but let's talk about all health care costs and how do we get to real solutions. Thank you, Lori Riley. Your time is up. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Again, I want to remind you it's the difference between the two votes that determines our winners. In the first vote, 33% agreed with the motion, 28% were against, and 39% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 42%. That means they went up 9 percentage points, which is now the number to beat. The team arguing against the motion, their first vote was 28%. Their second vote was 48%. They picked up 20 percentage points. The team arguing against the motion has won this debate. Blame Big Pharma for out-of-control health care costs. Congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at New York University's Skirball Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is our audio engineer. Clea Chang, chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. And you can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit us at iq2us.org. This debate was sponsored in part by the Adam Smith Society, a project of the Manhattan Institute, and was generously funded by Thomas Campbell Jackson as part of a new series exploring health care. Intelligence Squared U.S. debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson, Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Ellen Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and the Paul E. Singer Foundation. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thank you.